Please keep eating, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and get started. And if you want to follow along, in, there should be copies of uh, the scripture on your table there. If you want to turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament, we're going to continue from where we left off last week. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 this afternoon. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for a moment. Father in heaven, we ask this afternoon that your word truly would advance, the gospel would go forth, that our lives would be impacted and touched in such a way that we would carry your word into this world, into a needy and watching world, and that through our lives the gospel would advance as well. We thank you for Christ today who draws us together, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I have a brother who lives in San Diego. Uh, he's former military, and he was military intelligence. So when he got out of the military, he uh, began looking around for work. And the, uh, the police are oftentimes looking for ex-military, certainly those with an intelligence uh, background. So he's in California right now, and uh, he's in San Diego. He works for the California Harbor Police, and he has a variety of different duties. Uh, sometimes he's in a patrol car. Uh, moving through the streets of San Diego. Sometimes he's at the airports, uh, and sometimes he's on uh, boats in the San Diego Harbor. Uh, and one of the unique duties that he has, he's a part of their scuba diving team. Uh, this is not recreational scuba diving, if you've ever done that. Uh, this has a much more dangerous component to it. Uh, they often will do search and recovery. If there's a, a body in the harbor, they have to go and they have to find it. Another one of the uh, components to their duties uh, comes around, I think it's once a year, uh, with something called Fleet Week, where the, uh, the naval fleet will pull into uh, the San Diego Harbor and, and basically display uh, their ships for those uh, who want to come and, and see. Uh, one of their responsibilities as the scuba team is, uh, is to go and um, patrol underneath uh, searching the bottoms of these vessels for possible explosive devices. Uh, so not, not only does he have the danger of being underwater, he also has the danger of, of uh, swimming underneath these great vessels, some of the uh, battleships and, and some of the, uh, the aircraft carriers. But his duty is to look for possible explosive devices. Uh, he has to keep a keen eye. He has to keep his focus. He has to make sure that he is uh, focused on his task. He's not there to sightsee. He's not there to look around. Uh, he's not there to wonder what's going on above him. 
uh, to think about the, the vastness of the vessels that float above him, to think of Fleet Week going on and all the celebrations with that. He has to keep his focus on the main thing. And so really he's there uh, to do um, two things. Uh, one is to remove any impediments that might be uh, attached to the bottom of those vessels, any mines or anything like that. So he removes impediments um, and he keeps the main thing the main thing, uh, which is his job underneath those vessels. Um, Stephen Covey, a few years ago, wrote a book called The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective uh, Person or People. Uh, I don't often quote Stephen Covey, but he has a very unique phrase that he coined, I believe. He says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. But think about that for a minute. The main thing, and he's talking in business, The main thing in business is to keep the main thing the main thing. Not to get distracted, not to allow extraneous things to come in, but to keep the main thing. So in a business, it may be to to earn a profit. So the main thing is to earn the profit. So don't allow other things to, to distract you. For my brother, the main thing, again, was to remove, to search for those possible minds uh, and to not become distracted. Our passage today of Scripture uh, reminds us that Paul... Uh, in his keeping the main thing, the main thing, is reminding us as well as believers, as followers of Christ, that we too are to focus on the main thing. And for Paul, the main thing was the advancement of the gospel. That is why Paul existed. He existed to, to share Jesus Christ, to glorify God, to advance the gospel wherever he went. And in the case of the book of Philippians, his desire was to help the Philippians keep the main thing, the advancement of the gospel, the main thing. So I want to look at three things this afternoon. Advancement through imprisonment, advancement through ill will or goodwill, and then advancement through Jesus Christ. So the first uh, three verses, 12 through 14, we look at the advancement through imprisonment. And it ought to raise the question for us, as Paul sort of uh, subconsciously raises it here, how will the gospel be advanced in our lives and through our lives? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is Christ advanced through your life? Paul uh, believed that the, the, the believer's task was to advance the gospel in everything, in every way, in every place. And Paul's love for the Philippians was that they would grasp this idea of loving Christ and advancing the gospel. I want to review for a second from last week, uh, from the intro of the book of Philippians. Remember, Paul had founded the, the, the church in the city of Philippi around A.D. 51-52. Uh, and he had visited at least uh, two other times. But at this point, it's around 61 A.D., and Paul is writing from prison in Rome. And so the church here is about 10 years old. Um, So Paul is writing to encourage the Philippians. He's writing to remind them of of how they were established, why they were established. And he's writing to remind them that he is in prison and everything that goes along with that. We looked last week at this idea of fellowship, the fellowship of believers. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Again, in a business, uh, there is fellowship among the employees that they have a, have a shared vision of what it is the task of the, that particular business is, whether it's to sell widgets or whether it's to sell life insurance. Their main thing is to sell. 
But D.A. Carson goes on, he says, Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. Our main thing, that which unifies us, is Jesus Christ, the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But there's a fellowship that we share, and when we come together as believers, when we come together with that unifying, overarching idea of Jesus Christ, then we truly do have fellowship. This is a fellowship gathering. Because we're doing more here today than just eating. We're gathering to hear the word of God, and I pray to then take that word and to go home with us. So this is a fellowship gathering, a trust of believers, but for a purpose beyond some of the basics here. And so verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul is in chains at this point. Paul is in chains at this point. How can Paul's confinement, his imprisonment, possibly advance the gospel? You would think it would be the opposite. Paul's confinement, his imprisonment, would actually serve to, to limit the gospel. He can't go forward with the gospel. But Paul says his imprisonment, his chains, actually serve to advance the gospel. And so it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, verse 13, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. We see something like this, and perhaps the Philippians saw Christ's, uh, excuse me, Paul's imprisonment as a, as a hindrance, as a limitation. And so we begin to question, maybe the Philippians did as well, well, Paul's in prison, so the gospel's not going forward, so God must have turned his back on Paul, right? Something's gone wrong. There's a wrench in the works. But not only did Paul write to the Philippians, but he also wrote to the Romans, And he wrote Romans 8.28, that great verse that reminds us that God does work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And and so Paul writes in other places that that all things are used by God. He's reminding the Philippians in this way that, that even his imprisonment is being used by God. And we don't often have a perspective when we're in the midst of a struggle, when we're in the midst of, of a difficult time. We don't often have the perspective that comes with time and distance to see what is God doing. We don't get a chance to see behind the curtain, as it were. We don't get a chance to see. And so sometimes our, our faith begins to falter. I think I said it last week or the week before that uh, what is the cement that will hold your faith together during difficult times? During times that would challenge anyone, during those times when, uh, of sickness and ailment, during times of, of persecution, uh, of being forgotten, what is the cement that will rise up to, to sort of glue back together the faith that you have? And Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that, that it's, it's the promises of God, that God truly is sovereign over all things and, and will work all things together for our good and for his glory. So Paul, again, is, is writing to the Philippian church to encourage them with his optimism. He is uniquely optimistic. He's joyful in the midst of his incarceration. He reminds them that his imprisonment is not a hindrance to the word, and they don't need to be sorrowful, but excited that God is indeed using Paul's change to further the kingdom. It's amazing here in the book of Philippians that Paul wants to refocus the Philippian church away from the question of what's happening to Paul, much more to the question of what is happening to the gospel and to God's kingdom. 
Isn't it an amazing sense of, of self-forgetfulness that Paul has here? That, that you and I, perhaps when we write someone and we're suffering, we, we do want to draw attention to that. We want, yes, we want their prayers, but maybe we want their sympathy. We want the attention. We want to be relieved of that. But Paul here redirects their attention away from his suffering onto the kingdom. And he reminds them, yes, I'm suffering, but that suffering has a purpose. Has a unique purpose to bring about God's kingdom, to further God's kingdom. And so the Philippian church and, and others might have thought, well, that's the end of Paul's ministry. He's imprisoned. And so the advancement of the gospel into Europe is, is, is ceasing. And there are certainly pivotal moments in history that we look back on with hindsight and see that what to the people at the time might have seemed like the end was actually uh, the beginning of something new. Many believe that the Great Depression in the, uh, the, the early to mid-1900s was brought to a conclusion because of the advent of World War II. And while no one would want to, to look back and cheer on the, the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor and the entrance of America into the war, many believe that it was the beginning of the, war, of, of the, uh, the U.S.'s interest in the war that, that ended the Great Depression here in the United States and even around the world. So we can look back with hindsight and say, yes, something good did come out of something tragic, something horrible. Though at the time it seemed uncertain. It seemed uh, that people questioned what was going to happen. And we see that in the scriptures as well. Wonder if Satan himself uh, sort of greedily rubbed his hands together at seeing Christ being led to Golgotha with the cross on his back saying, I've won. I've won. I've won. And yet we now know with hindsight that that truly was the victory, that Christ going to the, to the hill, being hung on the cross, dying and rising again was, was the pivotal moment in all of history, the, the pivotal moment in spiritual history where, where God's victory was solidified and finalized. But we know that those who surrounded Christ, when he was struck, they scattered. What must, have they, what must they have thought on that Friday evening after Christ had died on the cross, the dejection, the, the sense of doom, the sense of, of frustration, and uh, the idea that, that all that we've suffered for, all that we've loved, is now at an end. And yet three days later, they celebrate with the empty tomb. And so those moments in history, even in biblical history, especially biblical history, we look and, and, and we see that it seems that something terrible has happened, and yet we know with hindsight, because we know the rest of the story, that God has used those for great things. And we see it here with Paul. The gospel advances, not in spite of his change, but actually through his change. We see it in other places in Scripture that when Joseph is sold to the midnight, Midianite traders, perhaps he thought his life was over. But we see at the end of Genesis in in chapter 50 where Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we see it in the life of Job as well that great harm was brought to him and yet God used it to glorify himself. So isn't it wonderful that we have the, the, the totality of Scripture that gives us the rest of the story, that we can look and trust that when things are terrible, God is actually working behind the scenes, not in spite of those things, but through those things. And should that not lead us to a sense of faith, 
Should that theology not be the glue that, that binds our faith back together when we begin to worry and fret and doubt and fear, knowing that Romans 8.28 truly is right? Verse 12 goes on, talking about the roadblocks to the gospel, that Paul sees his imprisonment um, as removing roadblocks and not uh, putting them in the way. Uh, How else, one writer said, how else would a Jewish Christian gain entrance and a hearing into the royal guard and into the throne room of Rome itself? Because as God uh, allowed Paul to be taken into chains, he's now taken into the heart of the Roman Empire. And he has a chance to impact the seats of power. And to see the gospel spread. So his chains were wonderfully used to, to not uh, bind up or hold back the gospel, to be, but, but to be used to expand the gospel. Just as my brother underneath and, and his uh, um, comrades underneath those ships seek to remove hindrances uh, to the celebration above, so too does, do Paul's chains, uh, they don't bind the gospel. They actually are used to advance the gospel. Verse 13 talks about the imperial guard and how Paul's chains uh, are used to, to move the gospel forward into the imperial guard. Later on, uh, Paul will be again held in prison in Rome with a great deal more freedom as he's in a private residence. But now Paul is bound in chains. He's, he's, he's bound between two Roman guards, and not just any Roman guards. These are uh, royal guards, guards that uh, watch over the emperor. The praetorium is what they're called. The, uh, a group of 9,000 soldiers who are handpicked and are honored with double pay, good pensions, and special duties. They guard royal prisoners or, or Roman prisoners, and they're attached by chains. So each day, Paul has one to two of these praetorian guards chained to him, and they would rotate this duty through. 9,000 different guards, so did Paul see the same guards every day, or or did they rotate through these? We don't exactly know. Uh, But Paul had an amazing opportunity to influence the cream of the crop of the Roman centurions. And each day, Paul had a wonderful chance to to share Christ through his actions and his words with these guards. What would these guards have seen with Paul? What kind of a lifestyle, what kind of a behavior and attitude would they see? They would see patience and gentleness and courage and an unswerving loyalty to his inner conviction, keeping the main thing, the main thing. I wonder if those guards ever rolled their eyes and said, here we go again. Paul's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. Over and over and over again. Perhaps laying out for them the history of of God's people in the Old Testament, but always taking it back to Jesus Christ, advancing the gospel, moving it forward. Each time he was chained to one, he would tell them about Christ Jesus. If someone was chained to you all day, if someone were bound to you all day, what would they see? What would they hear? Would they hear this and see this same kind of attitude of patience and gentleness and courage? Would they sense a a, a devotion to the main thing in your life? They will see it. They'll see the main thing in your life. They'll get a chance to see what that is. 
What is that? What is the main thing in your life? And it's not necessarily this, the thing that we say is the main thing, but it's what our actions bear out. Hopefully they're the same things, but maybe they're not. Maybe as someone watches, they hear us talking one thing, but they see our actions, the way we live, the way we spend our money, the people that we're with, and they begin to see that what we say and what we do may not always come together. But with Paul, these guards would have seen the main thing as the main thing. So how is the gospel advancing here? Paul's in Rome, the center of the empire. He's brought the, the gospel to the heart of the empire. Remember that, Paul, uh, that Philippi, as Paul went to it initially uh, in Acts 16, is, is, was at a headway, uh, the entryway into Europe. But now Paul sits in the, the, the headquarters, the, the main center of Europe. And he has this wonderful opportunity being chained to these guards. We also see from Philippians 4.22 that the gospel and Paul's influences have extended not only to the army, but also to the imperial household, to Caesar's household itself. What an amazing thing this is. When we look at it like this, we see what God is doing. We see how amazing God is to do it this way. His change didn't weren't, weren't, uh, weren't holding the gospel back, but his chains were being used to advance the gospel. We see his sufferings continued. He was bound, so this was no picnic. This was no easy thing. This was no uh, beachfront villa. He was still imprisoned. He was still bound. He was still kept from doing what he wanted to do, which was visit these churches, go establish other churches, to move around in Rome And so I wonder if he ever did grow frustrated. But his sufferings are great, we see in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 11 reminds us uh, that he has experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night... And a day I was adrift, and it goes on and on and on. And we see this imprisonment, this, this binding, as adding to Paul's sufferings. And yet, does not God use sufferings to move his kingdom forward? Does he not use it in our lives uh, to bring about change in us? And so Paul, always keeping before him the main thing, the gospel, And we see this word being used here in verse 13, but it's not the first time or the last it'll be used. It's used nine times in this book. I ask my kids sometimes, and I've asked teenagers for years, so what is the gospel? If the main thing is the gospel, what is it? How do we define it? And oftentimes I will get this response. What is the gospel? Well, it's Matthew, it's Mark, and it's Luke, and it's John, right? And so we confuse easily the gospels, with the gospel. And I remind them that no, it's the preaching of Christ, his death and resurrection, and his present lordship. D.A. Carson said, the good news that Jesus, God himself, has reconciled us to himself. So the good news that Paul brought in his chains was that we can be reconciled to God the Father. We can be made whole again. Our relationship that's fractured and broken by sin can be made whole again. Our only hope in this life or in the next. And this gospel that is so, so drips off the tongue of Paul all over his epistles was also foretold 
in Isaiah 61, verse 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. This good news, this gospel, this reconciliation was predicted, heralded in the Old Testament, and now we see it in Paul coming uh, to life. So this afternoon, what is your chief end? We know many of us that the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? To, to glorify God, we know. What is your chief end? We'd like to quickly say our, our chief end is to glorify God. But again, if someone's walking with you, will they see your actions marrying up with your words? Is everything uh, submitted to the chief end, to your chief end, to, to God's call on your life? What's the main thing? What's your goal? What are your aspirations? One commentator said, to make money, to get married, to travel... To see your grandchildren grow up, to find a new job, to retire early. And he says, none of these is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. He's saying that these things that we pursue are good things. But are they so paramount in our lives? Do they so control our behavior and our thoughts that it squeezes everything out, squeezes out the main thing? That they squeeze out Jesus Christ so much so that that can't even be seen in us anymore. Verse 14 goes on and says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Are you bold to speak the word? Are you bold to speak about Jesus Christ? Again, is that the main thing in your life? To love Jesus Christ and and to make him known? Because what Paul said and saw was that as he's in chains, the gospel is advancing not only through him, but in the lives of others. That others are beginning to take the gospel and move forward. They're not being held back or bound I read a story in, in preparing for this, again, a story you're probably very familiar with, of five Wheaton College graduates in the 1950s who lost their lives in an attempt to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians. And those who witnessed that, uh, many would think, well, once those students were killed on that beachy shoreline, by the Indians, wouldn't that have stifled the gospel? Wouldn't that have uh, cut off the flow of of missionaries going back to the Aka? And yet they found it was just the opposite. They found that there was a steady steady stream of Wheaton Wheaton graduates year after year who offered themselves to missions. And so oftentimes persecution and suffering has the opposite effect that we would think it would have. Certainly the the opposite effect than what Satan would like for it to have. We would think that as those men were killed on that shore, that the the people willing to go and and give their lives or or take the gospel to the Indians there would would dry up. But it was the opposite. It exploded. And we see that in the history of the church. We see that in the history of missions. That where there's persecution, the gospel thrives. 
And we see that with Paul as well. So the advanced, the gospel has advanced through Paul's change, and now we see the advancement of the gospel through ill will and goodwill. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul's success and imprisonment and sufferings have brought with it rivals. As Paul succeeds and as Paul uh, carries the gospel forward, it brings about jealousy as others seek to undermine him. Again, Paul's in, in, in Rome in prison awaiting trial. And there were undoubtedly those who looked at his uh, claiming his Roman citizenship. Remember, he's, on tri- he's, he's about to be put on trial, and he's appealed to, the, to Caesar to Nero himself, to be heard for this trial. And so perhaps there were those uh, Jewish leaders who feared that as Paul draws attention to himself, that more attention would be drawn to them and persecution would grow. Perhaps even they looked at Paul and said, well, Paul's in prison, so he must not be very successful, right? So they began to puff themselves up and began to, to tear Paul down. Paul must have had obvious character flaws to be in trouble. And so they look at themselves and see their ministries growing and they see Paul's perhaps ending. And so they puff themselves up. And there's rivalry and there's envy. Verse 16 says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Not only there are those who oppose him out of jealousy and envy and rivalry, but there are those who support him. They do so out of love for Paul and of love for Jesus Christ. We see throughout the epistles that there are many who will oppose Paul. There are many who will work against him. And Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 11 about those who will pervert the gospel, uh, preaching a Christ that is not the Christ. But those are not who Paul's talking about here. They are still proclaiming the gospel, but they're doing it out of bitterness and envy and rival. It's so easy for ministers today to seek to puff themselves up, isn't it? We see it all over, TV evangelists and those who want to draw attention to themselves. It's so easy for ministers to get caught up in numbers and to get caught up in in self-proclamation. Pray for us. Pray for your ministers. Pray for humility. Pray that we would not be puffed up, that we would keep the main thing, the main thing, which is not us, but it's Christ. Some draw attention to themselves, while some point to Jesus Christ. So how would others preaching afflict Paul? They preach to add salt to his wound. They, they preach in such a way to draw attention to themselves and highlight the fact that Paul is no, more, no longer there, that Paul is in prison. And so they seek to add to his torment, to draw attention to themselves, their freedom, their growth, uh, their prosperity, and in so doing to highlight Paul's affliction. Verse 18 goes on and he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. This is one of those amazing verses in Scripture. As long as someone is preaching the true gospel, as long as someone is truly preaching Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't care who gains the credit. It's amazing that he doesn't 
seek the credit as long as Christ is magnified. We see this in, first John, in John chapter 1 with John the Baptist. As others come to him and say, there's this man, Jesus, who's taking away your disciples. And, and John says, that's why I came. I'm not the, the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He gives the credit to Christ for who he is. And he allows himself to, to be marginalized and to be almost forgotten. And he ends that with, yes, and I will rejoice. He rejoices in his sufferings because he knows that it advances the gospel. Whether the gospel is being preached through ill will or good will, Paul says, I will rejoice. Last thing, and then we're done. I'm going a little long. Not only is the gospel advanced through Paul's imprisonment, through ill will and good will, but also through Jesus Christ. You see, because Christ himself could have derailed his very own ministry. We know that uh, as Christ is being tempted by Satan, Satan gives him opportunities. He gives him an off-ramp, a way away from suffering, a way to escape the cross. All he had to do was worship Satan, and he could escape those things. He could gain notoriety, attention. And yet Christ himself would not allow distraction, even if it was for his own benefit. Christ kept the main thing, the main thing. We see in the garden, he's also at one point crying out to be relieved of this cup of suffering that's coming. And yet the father says to him, no, this is my will. And Christ submits. And so Christ in those moments keeps the main thing, the main thing. We as a church can easily be derailed, distracted by good things. All kinds of issues call our attention, abortion, pornography, media bias, economic injustice, racial discrimination, classism, sexism, but a few. And we can get so focused on these that we lose sight of the main thing. Those are good things to focus on, good things to to talk on, but Christ and the gospel is the main thing. What is your main thing this afternoon? Is it Christ and his kingdom? Is it Christ in your kingdom in your life? Is Christ your king? Is he your main thing? And is proclaiming the good news of Jesus the main thing in your life? Will you keep the main thing the main thing today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you today easily distracted, easily swayed, easily pulled, especially when we suffer, especially when life gets difficult. Father, we can easily uh, take our eyes off the main thing. But Lord, we pray as a church, we pray as individuals, that we would keep our eyes focused on Christ, that we would proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives, to our families, to our friends, to this nation, to this world. Help us today to keep the main thing the main thing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As always, folks, thank you for the privilege of coming and and preaching today. Have a good day.